Behind every amazing flavor is an amazing human who has perfected their craft. Welcome to Flavors Unknown. A behind-the-scenes look at new flavors and the chefs, pastry chefs, and bartenders who create them with your host, Emmanuel. Today is a very special episode. COVID-19 hit the U.S. hard in March and had a disastrous impact on the restaurant industry. On April 1st, I recorded this panel discussion with three chefs representing different regions of the country. It was recorded exactly one week after the passing of Chef Floyd Cardoz after a COVID-19 diagnosis. My three guests are Chef Naomi Pomroy from Beast in Portland, Oregon, Chef Ian Bowden from The Shack in Stoughton, Virginia, and Chef Gabrielle Kreuter from Two Michelin Star Restaurant in Manhattan, New York City. I am your host, Emmanuel Roche. Welcome to another episode of the Flavors Unknown podcast. Thank you for listening today. If you are new to the show, I have been in the food industry for more than 20 years, both in Europe and in the US. And every other week, I have a conversation with chefs, pastry chefs, or bartenders from different parts of the country. You can find the show notes at flavorsunknown.com. Thank you so much, I mean, for accepting my invitation to be part of this panel, you know, my podcast, Flavors Unknown. It is really a special episode, very different from all the previous episodes that I have done. COVID-19, that's the story today, is impacting U.S. economy. And as a result, social uh, distancing has a devastating effect on the restaurant industry. So early on, we have seen people that started to cancel their dinner plans. Then they've started to favor, you know, grocery shopping versus takeout. And finally, you know, in mid-March, a lot of restaurants were ordered to close and other unfortunately closed temporarily or even some already not announced definitely because of like no income. So I have invited uh, the three of you because you represent different geographical parts of the U.S. and different restaurant profiles. So we have uh, Chef Naomi Pomroy. Uh, you are based in Portland, Oregon, and your restaurant Beast has helped define Portland as one of the America's most culinary creative cities. So Naomi, welcome to the show. Thank you. Then we have uh, Chef Ian Bowden. Uh, you are located at uh, the beautiful foothills of uh, the Appalachian Mountains. And uh, with your restaurant, The Shack, in Stoughton, Virginia, you contributed to the revival of the Southern cuisine. So, Chef Ian, welcome to Flavors Unknown. Thank you for having me. And finally, Chef Gabrielle Kreuther. Uh, you are based in Manhattan, New York. And with your two Michelin star restaurant, you have proven that the market for fine dining remains, you know, at a high level. Chef Gabrielle, welcome back to the show, as we had the pleasure to uh, have an interview with you, like in November last year. Thank you. So you guys obviously are living a very difficult times. So first, I want to ask you, how are you doing, like personally? So I don't know who wants to uh, to start. I can start. Um, this is Naomi, and personally, I feel like you know, old habits die hard. You know, we were just talking before we started the show about how chefs aren't really used to sleeping that much anyway. I feel like I've just kind of dug my heels in and started working a lot on policy and trying to you know, get some federal support for my friends across the industry and 
have people understand kind of the danger that our restaurants are in. So I've been filming some commercials and doing some work with a new coalition that we formed. And so actually, I've been like almost busier than ever. And in a way that helps me probably not be so in touch with just how fragile everything is right now. And, you know, of course, I feel very sad when I pause and stop to think about it. It was really hard to let my staff go. People that have worked with me for many, many years. And that's really tough. But of course, I'm working really hard around the clock to try to see how we can open back up again when the time is right. Yeah. So you you have closed the restaurant, correct? Yeah, we closed on, on March 15th. Yeah. And that's a decision that uh, you, you guys have taken, correct? Yeah, actually, before we were forced to close, we decided it was the right thing for us to do just based on, you know, the virus and feeling like, okay, reservations are already down, like maybe they were down about 40, 40% when we closed. So it was already a really steep, steep drop. And already they were recommending social distancing. But, you know, we just, my restaurant is really small. It's about 800 square feet and we have uh, two communal dining tables. And we do a six course tasting menu, you know, so everyone's in there for about two and a half hours and sitting like really close to each other. <laughs> it's very small. So it wasn't really possible for us to apply the social distancing to our restaurant. And we felt like it was important to keep the community safe. So we just opted to close. And then, and then a couple of days later, like three or four days later is when the governor forced all restaurants to close for in-room dining. So we weren't very far ahead of the curve, but we definitely decided before we were told to. Okay. Chef Ian, what's, um, you know, how do you, how do you feel? How are you doing? Um, stressed, very stressed. You know, we're kind of in a similar situation uh, as Naomi. It's up, we're in a very rural area, about two and a half hours outside of DC. We didn't feel it until, um, I can't remember the date. It's, it, it was a specific Wednesday when, uh, when it kind of blew up um, in New York and some other bigger markets. We just gotten an amazing review the Washington Post, which was super exciting, something that we thought would never going to happen. We just had our six-year anniversary. Business was jamming. And it went from a full dining room every night to watching reservations just drop off. And as I saw them drop off, we, we made the call to switch our model, try to pivot and do takeout and delivery. Because I was concerned about my staff, as all of us are. I wanted to do everything I could to, uh, to ensure that my staff could eat. I ended up, you know, we're super small as well. We're 26 seats. We're, we're just a little smaller than Naomi. We're, my kitchen's about 120 square feet. My dining room's about 400 square feet. So social distancing for us is, is, is non-existent as well. What I decided to do, I gave all my front of the house staff raises, put them up to 10 bucks an hour, which for us is in, in this area is huge and hoped that the generosity of our clientele and our community would help put them through and make, make them be able to eat. And that just wasn't reality. You know, once the tips come in and we pay our payroll tax and they pay their end of payroll tax, they're getting $20 on a check. It's just not enough. So we decided, I guess on Sunday, I sent a text message to all my staff telling them that we were going to shut down. You know, they've been very included in the process since day one. You know, when we first talked about it, um, we had a staff meeting and I said, you know, if anybody's uncomfortable doing this, please let me know. And then everybody was on board. From there, it was like, okay, well, if anybody doesn't feel well at all, they cannot be here. We set in some protocols, you know, since you enter the restaurant, you wash your hands. When you leave the restaurant, you put on gloves to bring stuff to people at the curbside, you know, sanitize your car if you're uh, doing a delivery, all that stuff. The reality is that we were just spinning wheels. The restaurant was paying its bills. The staff isn't making any money. And the anxiety and stress of the whole thing 
you know, the cosmic psyche uh, was bearing down on all of us. Yeah. Uh, so you say it's it's tough for you to sleep, correct? That's what you were telling yeah. me uh, before we, we started yeah. recording. Yeah. yeah, sleep is sleep is just kind of non-existent right now. And then, you know, cooking, cooking, you know, as, as somebody in the hospitality, as all of us are in the hospitality business, I mean, part of what we do is interact with our guests and to not have that interaction and cook food that we don't normally cook to an empty dining room is honestly depressing. It was weighing on all of us. Yeah. So, and what about, what about you, um, Chef uh, Gabriel? For us, for me, it's a little bit the same as, as we just uh, listened to uh, to both of you guys. Uh, stressful. Uh, the world is upside down. Um, you know, it started at first that um, when everybody talked about uh, COVID-19, it started with uh, seeing the, the private dining home uh, parties to cancel moving forward. So little by little, the percentage uh, cramped up uh, on the cancellations. And then, uh, like Naomi said, uh, the reservation went down at the beginning by 40, 50%, and then by 70%. So at the, at that point, we had to make a decision, but also the decision was, for, you know, you have to, you can make the decision on, on closing what's the, the safest, the best thing to do. And, uh, and, and the safest thing for everybody, for, for, for the health of everyone and not putting any, anybody in harm's way, uh, the best was to really close. And then, you know, the mayor followed up in New York City to, uh, mandate all restaurant closings. But the hardest, the hardest thing, really in that whole in that whole process was liter literally to to shut the restaurant clean it up you know clean up that so that when you reopen it's 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 in, in good shape but also doing those personal phone calls to people that worked with me for 15 12 10 8 years and tell them that uh, we're forced to close and, and and temporarily we have to lay them off and those are very hard conversations that we have no control of it the restaurant business, the, what we do every day, it's a family. We're spending more time with, uh, with the people that work with us that with our own family. And, uh, and that's, it's really, it's really heartbreaking to see, uh, the way everything, everything uh, went and everything, how it's everything going now still. And we know end in sight. So I think not having the answers, not having a timeline on anything is adding fuel to the fire. It's tough and, you know, it's really, it's the people really that matter the most in our business. But on the other hand, we're fortunate that we also, you know, are healthy on, on, we, we not, you know, but I, I know, uh, when I heard the news about Floyd Cardos, that was really, really heartbreaking because for a while we worked in the same company. So, uh, you know, the anxious, the stress and the anxiousness is, is gearing up as it, hits closer home as people that get struck are closer to you and have a name and 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 that's scary you know that's it's really scary yeah because uh, you know at the beginning i think like everyone was saying you know it's oh it's a little bit more a difficult like flu situation and you know different context and then as you said suddenly when the the illness start to hit people that are close to you and with um, the scale that it's taking, uh, you know, at the moment, it's it's really um, frightening and 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 of course, you know, very difficult for a lot of people to to live. So you you mentioned that um, you know um, that looking at the hardest part about social distancing or the COVID nineteen was letting people go or 
not having really like a, a timeline, you know, from when it's going to um, to disappear or for you, Chef Ian, is like the idea of like not having interaction with a, with a guest because being a chef, it's about, you know, hospitality. What are, what are like the other, you know, tough moments or tough things for you guys uh, when it comes to the situation of COVID-19 or social distancing? One of the hardest parts is just knowing that so many restaurants are connected to so many purveyors and you know, we, we all have a community network that goes way beyond even just our family. You know, like Chef was saying, we, we go 16 hours a day, every day with the same people. See, they see them more than our family. And, and the same goes for people like the purveyors, you know, like, um, people bring us the fish and bring us vegetables and, you know, just people that we, we buy meat from. And, you know, the same people, you know, Beast has been open for 12 and a half years, but I had other restaurants before some of the people I've been working with for over 20 years. And, you know, it's really painful to know that um, we're not giving any business to those farms right now either. And, and here in Oregon, people are just coming into their growing season. You know, finally, they're offering like some beautiful small spring vegetables. And, you know, we made it through the winter time, which is like the hard time for us. And, you know, now these businesses that have been growing vegetables for us don't have anywhere to sell them to. So I think one of the biggest and most difficult things is knowing that the chain is pretty long of people that are getting affected by this. You know, not only do we have to worry about our staffs and how will they make it unemployment and, you know, I mean, I would love to be able to, I paid my, I paid everybody's healthcare and I gave them, you know, double payment, you know, two checks at the end, but you know, my business is out of money, you know, just like everybody else. And I feel like it's really hard for employees, but you know, I know that they're going to be okay. And I offered like, Oh, if anybody needs to go to the restaurant and, and take some flour, leftover butter, you know, some beans from a storage area, it's okay. It's okay. You know, if you need that, or I can give you like a loan if you need a loan until the unemployment checks start coming. But the really other very sad thing is that the chain of distribution for restaurants is long and we have really committed relationships with these people. And I don't want to see some small farmers not able to survive this. Mm -hmm. And there's like no real structure or supply chain in order to for those farmers to sell those vegetables and, you know, in the future, near future fruits to the consumer directly, correct? That's yeah, there's I mean, not the infrastructure for that. No, it's too difficult. Like, you know, even our smaller grocery stores here, you know, buy a pretty strong volume of like the same kind of thing. You know, they just want like one shape of apple, one type of lettuce, you know. And these farmers are small and they're growing really specialized products for us. And, you know, even like we met last year and talked about the seed catalogs and, and we go through with farmers and they plant specific things for us and they're unique and interesting that customers don't really know how to use. So they can't just go to the grocery store and sell them. Some of our farmers are actually setting up. Um, we're, we're actually going to let them use our restaurant for a drop point for our, our heritage pig farmer. Before we shut down, we were trying to do pantry staples. So we have a pasta extruder. So we're extruding pastas for people. We were making sauces out of meats and vegetables from our farmers, trying to help keep them going as well. So there, in, in our area, there's definitely some direct to consumer operations setting up. The Beard House is supposed to give me a list of resources for small farmers that are growing unique products. There's apparently some resources for them for some financial relief. But uh, as, as Naomi was saying as well, the, the, the supply chain is huge. I mean, we also deal with reps. Our reps are all hurting as well. Our wine reps, uh, Virginia's big wine country, just like Oregon is and New York is. 
and all of those local wineries are are struggling. They just harvested. I was talking to one of my friends the other day, and they are planting thirty two thousand or some ridiculous amount of vines this week because they have to. Harvest came in. They're 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 still in the in, in the wine rooms making wine, fermenting grapes. Um, and they they're not going to have a market for that because there's unfortunately not going to be as many outlets for it once this is all said and done. So yeah, it, it goes deep. Gabriel, any additional thoughts on the well, topic? Uh, yeah, I mean, New, New York City is a whole, uh, you know, with the concentration of restaurants that we have in New York City, uh, when everything happened and, and we were told to shut down and close, one of the big stuff was to really control the merchandise and what we had already in, uh, in storage, uh, produces and, and meat and fish and all that stuff. And that's when City harvest kicked in and a lot of it, I think is probably, that will probably be the biggest donation, food donation in, in history, probably in New York City when all the restaurants started to hand over food to City Harvest so that that organization can take care of the, of the neediest in, in, in the city because, you know, that it's just, there is everything, but there is also so many people that are, are struggling to get uh, every day a meal on the, on the table. So that was the, the, the New York City piece was really to work with the charities and, and hand over all that, that food. But then social, I mean, this whole thing, social distancing, I think one of the hardest thing is really not having the contact with the purveyors anymore, not seeing them come. You know, when a, a purveyor comes and, and, and delivers you something, a farmer, you shake hands with him, you have a little story and he drops the order and that, that contact, that social contact on, on what's going on out there and what they are doing, what's next. Not interacting with the staff anymore is very hard because, you know, all these people worked uh, there for, with their heart, putting their heart in every day. And now suddenly we're told to not interact with them anymore because of that, of that danger. And, and on the other hand, I have a, my father-in-law, I have a little daughter who's two and a half years old. So I think a heart, the heartbreaking piece is really to uh, not being able for her or for us to literally visit him because he's in his 90s. And right now, everybody's a danger. And it's too dangerous for him. So it's kind of heartbreaking. Little things, uh, the simplest thing, joys that life uh, uh, can bring you are right now canceled. And that's really hard to to deal with. I mean, and it's for everybody. So we have to do the right thing in order to uh, to go through this, I guess. I mean, you are saying this and it's true that we see in a lot of, uh, you know, social media, uh, family posting, you know, that situation when you see, um, sometimes the grandparents, you know, outside, you know, on the window in the garden. The window, yeah. To, yeah. Through the window to interact with their grandkids. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's really sad. But on the other end, you see all, I have to say, crazy people that are still, still these things like not understanding the situation. And then they are gathering. And <laughs> there was a last example with this great situation of like this uh you know the hospital navy ship coming into like the, the new york harbor uh you know a few days ago and then you have a crowd which is you know looking at it and taking pictures and because probably they want to post on uh, you know their social media but uh, you know where is the social distancing here anyhow sorry that's that's a different topic but it it drives me crazy we had the same we had the same thing in dc uh with the cherry blossoms tourists and 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 residents were out walking around the cherry blossoms, taking pictures. <laughs> yeah. Crazy. Yeah. People don't realize, you know, the situation. And then 
by continuing this type of behavior, you know, uh, it is lingering and it's, you know, it's not going to, um, you know, it's going to be difficult to uh, flatten the curve as, um, you know, how they say. I read an article, I think Chef uh, David Chang just said recently that without uh, government intervention, then there probably will be no service industry in in the future. What's your thoughts about um, this uh, statement? I think there's a, a lot of truth to that. I think it's uh, it might be overstated a little bit saying that there'll be no service industry. I think more poignantly, there'll only be a corporate service industry. What the government's offered us uh, at this point, as far as a bailout goes, is, excuse my language, they're basically offering us more debt. You know, my restaurant's in a slightly different situation than, than most, and, and I feel guilty and fortunate at the same time. We opened up for no money. It, we have zero debt, and we have savings. We're poised to come back, but I know I'm in the minority on this. I know friends all over the world right now shutting restaurants down that can't afford to accrue more debt. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's two and a half percent or three percent over over ten years. That that doesn't help. And all the tax credits that they're offering are also because I feel like it's a you know first off it's a band aid on on an amputee. Secondly, what people don't realize is that once you come back and you open the doors, what it's going to cost to get the restaurant open and operating again, what it's going to cost to have payroll in the bank or payroll uh, covered, all of those loans are going to be due at the same. I think it lulls people into a false sense of security, honestly. Naomi or Gabriel? It's highly true. You know, this is an industry that has a very low profit margin and can't deal with this situation on its own. And may, it all depends where, where you are in the country, what it takes to operate an open restaurant. But without, uh, without intervention from the government, it all depends. Now, don't lose context on that. It all depends how long we're going to be shut. Right now, we only shut for two, two and a half, three weeks. They're talking about a couple months here. Longer this thing is going to be, uh, closed, longer, longer we're going to be shut, harder it's going to be to deal with because people who have loans, people, uh, they have, uh, landlords, everything, we don't know. We don't have any answers. The answers are not good enough. The help so far that is, uh, that is uh, pushed out by the government is not good enough to make things work. So I think this is going to be a back and forth situation until they come up with something that makes sense. Uh, like Jan said before, I mean, they, they're offering loans, but yeah, you're creating more debt here. I, I mean, they have to, it, it needs to be something that is helpful to reopen, basically. I mean, this is, uh, it's not, it, there is no easy answer, but I believe that if there is no intervention, the fallout will be, will be huge. What about you, Naomi? Oh, I mean, that was a, that was a great article. And it's kind of exactly what we've been talking about with the Independent Restaurant Coalition is just, you know, we've formed really quickly, like around on the 18th, which was like two weeks ago or so and are trying really hard to push through interests of smaller businesses and what do we really you know need and uh, of course the cares act that passed on friday last week and was signed into law is just uh starting now and it's really like a small band-aid i mean i think one good thing is that you know it's uh forgivable the loans if you spend it on your staff and you spend it on payroll and utilities and, and whatnot, then it just becomes a grant. And really, it's designed to be more like a grant. 
Um, if you have to use it for something else, you know, like for personal use, it's a very 0.5 interest rate, you know, payable over two years. So it's really not even close to sufficient. I mean, this is, we're talking about, like Chef said, we're, we're not sure when we're going to be able to open again. So giving us a little lifeline right now when all of our employees are probably already trying to collect unemployment anyway, isn't really doing what it needs to do. You know, for us, I think we need actually one of the biggest things that we're fighting for at the Independent Restaurant Coalition is to get insurance companies, you know, to get the federal government to mandate that insurance companies should be responsible for the fact that they've, you know, insured us, which this is exactly what insurance is for, right? This is a national disaster. Everybody's closed. And the insurance companies created loopholes like virus exclusions or for, for myself, I didn't have a virus exclusion, but I did have something where, you know, my insurance adjuster called and said, there's no physical damage to your property. You can't be open because there's no f- evidence of physical damage. So you can't, you can't have business interruption insurance. So, you know, I mean, I think, I think there's a pretty strong argument to be made for the fact that coronavirus is physical damage. I mean, you know, <laughs> but, you know, that's going to take a, a long, legal battle. And, you know, I think, I think one of the things that's been very interesting in the work I've been doing is realizing that it's almost like an inside secret with chefs and, and restaurant owners that chefs aren't getting rich, you know, like some people see chefs like Dave Chang on TV, or, you know, they see us and they think like, oh, you, you got a great write up in the Washington Post, you know, you must be rolling in the dough. You know, the truth is, is that no matter how big or small your operation is, everybody's really living like this week's sales are paying last week's bills. Nobody's getting rich. We're all living paycheck to paycheck, essentially, even the restaurants themselves. And so I think we've been paying into a system with insurance for the whole life of our restaurants being open, and they should be accountable for that. And also, you know, we're, we're fighting for, for, cause they are going into round four funding. And another thing that we're fighting for is, you know, to get some tax breaks. You know, why does uh, other big businesses paying, you know, 3% tax or no tax or, you know, things like that. It's like we pay like 20% taxes in our industry and our profit margins are, you know, usually somewhere between like five and 10% top at the top. You know, lots of people are just, yeah, I don't think people understand that. Lots of people are just break even. I mean, I've been, Every interview I'm doing, I've been trying to explain to the press, you know, if a business minded person looked at our business models, they would all say like, hey, you should you should shut down. This is a this is not a good business, you know? Yeah. So in a long term way, you know, we're, what we're trying to do is, is talk a little bit about educating people, educating people in Washington, educating, you know, the general public that if you want to have these unique and special restaurants around. We have to have a bailout. We have to have real grants and real money given, tax breaks given, insurance company money coming through, or the landscape that you're going to see on the other side of this is, you know, a lot of Papa John's pizza, a lot of, you know, chain restaurants, a lot of strip mm-hmm. mall restaurants and, and a unique and amazing fabric that is all of us like this call today. We're all have different kinds of restaurants and different parts of the country and. And if people still want to celebrate that, then they're going to have to put their money where their mouth is. Thank you, uh, Naomi, for um, for saying that. Gabrielle, you want to add, um, you know, anything? 
yes, I believe that Naomi has a lot of things right here, and 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 I completely agree. And on the other, you know, this the closings that we have are not by choice; they are mandated. And I believe that when you when the government comes and mandates you to close a restaurant, they have to have also a plan to make you survive, to make to have all of these people that are working in those places survive. The restaurant business, it, the small the small businesses are like the the greatest uh, employers in the United States, literally. And and there needs to be some help. The a restaurant is the DNA, is the social fabric of a neighborhood of a society. If people want want that back. We need to figure out a way on bringing us back to a sustainable level. A private place, uh, a small place cannot deal with a problem of that, of that, of that size. It's, it's too big. You know, we literally wiped out. This is a, it's a national disaster in, in the, in the, in this industry. And there needs to be some thoughtful help here, you know. So you're, you're talking about like the, the insurance companies. You're talking about the tax breaks. What about the whole situation with rent? Because, you know, um, I, I don't know what's the percentage, but I would say the vast majority of the restaurants, you know, around the country, they don't uh, obviously own, you know, the location that they are at and uh, the rent is still there. So is there anything that could be done to help there, that level? I believe that uh, it's a case by case because every single landlord has a different mindset. It all depends with kind of people you're dealing with, with what kind of companies you're dealing with. And I believe that everything can be worked out if there is an honest conversation. Uh, right now, like everything else, there are no answers. There are no people, you know, everybody's trying to scramble. Everybody's trying to figure out a plan on how they can save their own house, right? That's uh, the landlords in the same boat as depending what kind of landlords. Everybody's trying to look at this and, and see what can be done. You know, in, in places like New York City, where you have huge landlords, a restaurant in a building, a restaurant in a neighborhood is the social fabric of that neighborhood is what brings also the value to, to a tower, to a rest, to a, to an area. And everybody is trying to figure out what's the next step on a personal level. I think here and there things will be figured out, but it's not an easy situation. It all depends how stubborn the landlords are. I think it also depends, you know, that's totally true. And it also depends how, you know, a lot of landlords, obviously they don't own their building outright, you know, they have a bank loan also. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, when we don't pay them, then they can't pay and then they could have it repossessed by the bank. And then suddenly we're also out of a restaurant because the, the bank has taken, taken it back over. So, you know, we're, it's a big, chain, just like the distributors and purveyors, it's a big chain of effect. And yeah, we need to, you know, one thing that could help with that is, you know, we're talking with our local government about putting a moratorium on commercial evictions so that, you know, we're asking our governor, make sure that, you know, for the next until we can open again, it's not legal to push someone out. And it really what it comes down to is, you know, when 2008, when we we bailed out Wall Street, you know, from the recession, and we bailed out big, big banks. And now it's like time for the big banks to bail us out. You know, it's like we we taxpayers paid for that. And so now it's like we here we are and we need help. We need them to say they give forgiveness to the landlords who can give forgiveness to us. So it's going to take a big chain. And the federal government, they, they can impose that they can say what needs to happen. But you know, they have to 
they have to decide about what they value, you know, and that's really what this comes down to is just like, you know, Chef Gabrielle said, we have to, as a society, decide what, where do we want to, what do we want to work to preserve? Mm -hmm. What can be done then? Um, you know, you you are doing you know this with the independent restaurant coalition. Um, you know yourself, Naomi. But uh, what can be done at the level of you know all all the chefs around the country? What what's your advice? Uh, you know, in order to activate you know all the things that you just mentioned. I think mostly it's about education. You know, mostly it's about explaining to people. Like Dave Chang's article was great yesterday because the New York Times. A lot of people read that. And a lot of people maybe didn't understand how at risk restaurants are. And I think the more we talk about it in our communities, you know, you never know who can help you in a situation like this. Like, you know, we're in an emergency situation and there are helpers everywhere. There are people that know someone else that knows someone else that, you know, knows a senator. You know, like it, we're all it, we're not very far removed if we look at our connections from people who can have influence over these choices. So the more we can even talk to local represent representatives, you know, talk to your mayor, talk to the, see if you can get a hold of the governor, you know, if every business that stands up and says, I can't make it if you don't help me is more power, adding power to the voices, you know. Well, our situation here is strange because we have, we've had three emergency city council meetings that are all done by uh, internet, of course. And they've talked nothing about small business. Um, they're still giving parking tickets in our town to small business owners who are trying to do what they can to survive. In my opinion, it's, it's about leadership uh, from top down. And, you know, if we don't have leadership on the federal level, the, the local level is, is useless. They're waiting for, for, for marching orders. And uh, there is none. For me, it's really about leadership. That is absolutely right. And I think, you know, as much as we can do to keep you know, uh, you know, as a state, Oregon has had to make some decisions above and before the federal level, and we aren't getting good guidance from Washington. But as we slowly kind of get our message out there, I do feel like we have the ability to have it heard. I mean, I think if it's not coming from the top, top down, then I think maybe it needs to come from our representatives in Congress and our senators. So, you know, hopefully... But all of this uh, takes takes time. It's a l very long process, um, and and that's um, frightening. It's it's scary because it's not on our side at all. So how can restaurants, you know, um, prepare for something like this moving forward? <laughs> <laughs> that's a really hard question. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know if we can ever prepare for something like this. It's a complete a curveball here. It's uh, it's this is last time last time society dealt with something like this was uh, beginning of the of the century, like uh, literally a hundred sure. years ago. You're, you're talking about the, the Spanish uh, flu, correct? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We are in uncharted territory here and, uh, and preparing. We hope that, you know, after uh, hopefully we're coming out of that in a good way, and hopefully we're never going to have to deal with that again in our lifetime. But how can we prepare, I think? At the end of the day, the only people that can really prepare for something like this is actually top the leadership in government, the leadership in in public health, education of the of the people of what can happen. I think through that crisis, we can probably learn a lot. We probably will see what 
was the good steps that we took and what were the foolish steps that the society took and hopefully educate uh, from the ground up. Basically, it's a, it's a, and having people listen to what best practices are moving forward. We are in a, in a, we see how people behave right now with the spring breakers that uh, are not uh, caring for anything. The younger generation that is really not uh, tuned in because at the beginning they were told that uh, it doesn't really affect them. So they're kind of like careless about it. At the end of the day, I think through that crisis, we're going to learn how we can appreciate each other on a different level. I think we will learn some something that's going to come out, the good manners and respect maybe. There needs to be, a, 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 it's going to help to reset the basics in society, I believe, this, this crisis. But preparing, I think, you don't prepare for anything like this as an industry. I think you prepare for this as a country, just like for earthquakes. How do you prepare for earthquakes? You, you do it from, you do it from the bottom up, um, from education and what to do and not what not to do. At the end of the day, um, the, the financials can always be figured out, but uh, it needs to be figured out by, by leadership. It's not uh, on our level. You know, this uh, social distancing and people being, um, let's say, locked down at home. You know, at the moment, it's been two, uh, two and a half weeks. As you said, uh, Chef Gabriel, it's going to last maybe a month, maybe another month. So when uh, that situation like linger like this, we probably are going to see an impact in terms of, you know, people behavior. So, you know, we have seen this happening when it was the 2008 recession, but it was a different situation because people were able to, you know, go out and go to, you know, restaurants, change their mind and, and so on. But after Absolutely. that, but yes. so how do you think it's going to, um, you know, to change the, the industry, you know, from your point of view? Well, the industry is going to be impacted. Uh, that's for sure. But, you know, it's, we're going to get, uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and hopefully we're going to be able to, uh, you know, they're going to be able to figure out something, either medication or a short-term medication or a long-term vaccine. And hopefully then things are coming back into order and that, that virus is controlled. They're saying that that virus is going to be with us forever, forever now, but we need to figure out a way of curtailing the, the impact it has on society. And hopefully they're coming up with something that will be doing but, that. But do you think it's going to change your, your, you know, your cooking style, your craft, uh, you know, because people are being more like into a, a delivery mindset, you know? I believe short term, it will have an impact on when, on what we do when we reopen. Yes, I believe that. But I also believe that there is, there is room. There are people, a restaurant is, is for, is made for going out and having a good time and doing celebrations, meeting people. It's the social fabric. So it will impact at the beginning, but later on, when everything comes back to normal, I believe that there is a place for us, uh, to do what we do. The type of cooking. Yeah. It all comes down to personal, uh, to every, uh, to every single, uh, uh chef. On how he wants to handle it, but also the demand of the of the of the guest. There will be a place for everything, you know. But at the beginning, I think it will impact the way we reopen, especially if the if the distancing is still part of the topic. Because I can imagine 
you know, I'm not sure, but I can imagine when they're going to tell us, okay, you okay to reopen, but you only can open at 50% of capacity because of the, of the distancing. I believe that that's probably something that's going to happen. If that's not the case, we may be shot for much longer okay. than we think. But, but would, um, you know, a restaurant like uh, Gabriel Crutter restaurant in New York City would change their, their model? you know, in the short term at the time of reopening because of the situation and, uh, and having more yes. take out, you know, yes, take out or, you know, that type of thing, which seems to be like completely not conceivable for your restaurant. But No, no, but yeah, we're going to, we're going to change our way of approaching it. Of course, it's, uh, it, we, we have to, we have to see uh, when we're going to be allowed to reopen and then we're going to decide if we do uh, some, some takeouts or not. Uh, and also our menu, our menu is going to change. Our, our offering is going to change. I think when we come out at the other end of this, people are looking uh, much more to have a relationship and, and a comforting experience than 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 uh, a very uh, you know a very complicated uh, experience. We're gonna we're gonna adapt to the to the situation, and uh, the we're here to to feed people and and nurture families and be part of the social gathering. But yes, the offering is going to mm -hmm. be changed, going to be different, of course, yeah. Yeah. Ian or Naomi, anyone wants to um, add their thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that, you know, there's, I, I answered a question yesterday with another person in an interview. I said, I think it's like a 50-50 chance I'll be able to reopen. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if, if it's something I can really do because I don't know how long this is going to last. I mean, I, I have enough money to last for a month or two. And then if, if the you know, loans come in, maybe I can make it work. But, but honestly, I think we have no idea. I think we could be maybe 50% less busy when we open, you know, so it's definitely a big unknown right now. And I try, I try really hard not to worry too much about it because, you know, things come and go and change and, and we have to adapt. And if, if, you know, I said, I made a joke, but I said, if I have to sell some food off my back porch, uh, uh, underground restaurant, like I can, I can do it, <laughs> yeah. but, uh, you know, I don't, I'm getting old for that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I started out, uh, underground restaurant many, many, you know, 25 years ago, but now I am getting older. So I don't want to have to hustle like that, but you know, we can do anything. Chefs are very adaptable. We just want to cook and feed people and it might look different. Maybe some restaurants definitely won't survive this uh, change. But I think, you know, for me, I want to look at the silver lining for me, even though it's kind of early, we're in the middle of the crisis, it's horrible, so many people are dying. We are also coming together as a community in a way that we haven't had time to come together because everybody's working 16 hours a day in their own little restaurant. Now uh, we have an opportunity to tell our story, to come together, to share our struggles with each other. And in some ways, it, it's like helping to be able to hear, even though it's very sad. We know it's not happening to any one of us. It's happening to all of us. And so I think we have a, some opportunity to have a strength in the, in the numbers. Okay. Ian, any thoughts? So I opened my first restaurant in this community literally in 07. I opened January 2nd of 07, my first restaurant here. And, and obviously, the market crashed in 08. And uh, we struggled a lot. And what I noticed once the market started to recover is that the, the people that dined with us were fewer, but they were willing to spend a little bit more money. 
Um, those are the people that are traveling to Europe to eat. They're traveling all over the United States to eat. So I think we're going to find it's less of a traveling, traveling Epicurean community and more of a local Epicurean community um, where people, instead of spending $300 to go to Europe and eat at, you know, the, the, the world's, the world's famous restaurants, they're going to stay in their community and spend more with them. You know, it's better to go spend $200 in your local community than spend a thousand dollars in somebody else's. So I think that it might be a little bit more, might be a little bit more insular. I also think that our, our, our local farmers are going to thrive if they get, get through this when they can get through this. Cause I think people are going to be able to put more of a face with their food, which is something that I know all of us have been fighting for for years for people to realize, you know, that every dish that comes out of the kitchen was made by a human. Um, and they are a human and they're not a servant. <laughs> you know, they are, they're, they're a human being families and concerns and have had bad days just like everybody else. I think and I hope that there's a lot more understanding and the communities get a little bit more tight fit. I think those of us that can get through this, um, and I hope, I hope we all do. I think there's definitely light there. There's definitely light. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm looking at the time and, um, you know, I, I want to be respectful of, um, you know, of yours. Uh, I have two, um, let's say, quick question for you at the end. What are you cooking at the moment? Personally, uh, you know, obviously you are not cooking in your restaurant, but as a chef, what are you two cooking for? Like during this time, you know, that brings you comfort. On my side, I'm I'm going back to very basic things. Uh, you know, I the other day I did a, an onion tart. So uh, an onion tart. I do I do homemade spätzle with some uh, with some. I had some some pork in the freezer, so I used the pork to do kind of like a pork and mushroom ragu. With a little bit creamy sauce with the spätzle. Last night I uh, I had some uh, frozen salmon filet in the in the freezer, so I took that out and I did it, uh, breaded with oatmeal and roasted it and served it with spinach. A lot of compost salads, a lot of uh, I packed up on some on some canned goods also, some peas and 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 beans and stuff like that. So I'm using that with uh, a mix of, of of fresh vegetables to do. Uh, soups that I finish with some protein in it. I do something with uh, cauliflower, kind of like things that are uh, easy to do, family style, that are comforting. I'm going to do a, a cauliflower recipe that my mother used to do, which is cooking the cauliflower in, 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 in salted water and then using using the cooking liquid to do a sauce with it and then pour it over the cauliflower with some hard boiled eggs and cheese and just gratin in the oven. And that's a, a one, a one dish meal, you know, things like that. What's favorite right now is the one dish meals and try to have a, may have it mixed up so that you don't get bored because right now, you know, you have to play with what's, with what's available to you. You know, you cannot just go in the supermarket every day. So. You're trying to to buy for uh, you know ten ten days to two weeks, just doing very homey style cooking that is very comforting and and I think that's what the focus is you know that's on my side that's what we do. And sh- what about you, Chef Ian? I mean, I, honestly, we're not far off. And the only the only the only thing um, that I cooked recently, honestly, a friend of mine went foraging for morels yesterday and brought me uh, beautiful a couple of pounds, and so I had pasta left restaurant yeah they were delicious and beautiful so what did you do with them so um so my wife my wife grew up foraging mushrooms in the mountains here uh, with her grandma 
So the way her grandma always prepared them is she soaked them in a brine for, for she soaked them overnight yeah. in a brine, um, which for me is too long. <laughs> but I, I soaked them in a brine for, for maybe 20 minutes. Um, and then she likes them dredged in a little bit of flour oh, okay. and then fried. Um, oh. So I did some for her because um, nice it makes crunchy. my wife very yeah. happy. Yeah, super crunchy. And, and, and you still get all the, the delicious flavor of the morel, just a little bit of salt and pepper. And that's it. I, and then with the rest of them, I had some pasta left from the restaurant and I just did a, a very simple morel cream sauce. So just butter, morels, cream. Uh, my wife made some rosemary salt the other day. I sprinkled a little of that in it and tossed it with some pepper dough. That was it. And it made us both very happy and we smiled for a while, which was nice because we don't get to do that as much. Um, tonight I'm making, I have a little uh, yakitori grill at the restaurant that I'm bringing home and I'm grilling some steaks that we had left from the restaurant. Some first asparagus that we just got going to get grilled and some broccolini and a little lemon vinaigrette to go over everything. And that'll be dinner tonight. But yeah, it's, it's, it's all about something simple and comfortable. Food is the way we feed our families. Yes, but it's also how we nourish each other in a spiritual way, I think. So whatever I can do to make my wife feel loved is very important to me right now. And honestly, that's the, that's the best thing that's coming out of all of us is I'm. You know, I'm used to seeing my wife for 15 minutes every morning. She's asleep when I get home from work. You know, she has a business. I have a business. Both of us are now unemployed. <laughs> so I, you know, getting to spend some real time with her is, is, um, is priceless to me. I hate the circumstances of it, but uh, I'm trying to cherish the time. Okay. So what will be the first thing that uh, both of you will, uh, will do when the situation is over? The first thing that I will do, I mean, I... The first thing when the situation is over and we, we, we told that we can try to go back to business is to really call back the people that, that are waiting for a phone call to come back and reform the team, mm -hmm. the team, basically, you know, it's the people that are um, the most uh, important in our business. It's the team. It's the time it takes to put a team together. It's the time it takes to educate a team. It's the time it takes to have that chemistry in a team. You know, it's really looking forward to have that positive phone call, like says, Hey, come back instead of like, you know, too bad. I need to let you go. So I'm looking forward for that conversation. And hopefully that conversation is not too far away. What about you, chef Ian? Uh, exactly the same. I can't wait to get my staff back. I stress and worry about them every day. Closing the restaurant was, you know, I've closed a restaurant before um, under very different circumstances. Um, and it's one of the most painful things for me that I've experienced. And doing it this time felt the same, except I know that there's something positive at the end. So being able to bring everybody back in and opening the doors, man, um, I can't wait. Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I will bust into tears the day that we have a full dining room with all of our guests yeah. that have been so amazing, supportive to us all over all, over all these years. I mean, uh, we've been here for six years, uh, but I have guests that have been following me for 14, as I said, 14 plus years, as I know Chef does as well. And to be able to welcome them back and pour them a, a glass of champagne and give them a hug instead of this this bump or six <laughs> foot away <wing. laughs> i have i have to put some bleep in my uh, recording now with <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> I <have a> bad <laughs> but no, i mean that, that, that i my I'm, i'm tearing thinking about it to be honest i can't i can't wait to 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 have have back what we're we're losing right now and it will be so much sweeter it'll be so much sweeter
Yeah, and it's also seeing also seeing the purveyors back, you know, seeing the farmers again and, and and interacting with them and see how those guys went through. Because listen, I grew up on a farm. I know this is not an easy life that they have. Harder and, than and, the chef's life. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 yeah, it's uh you know, you can compare the chef's life to a farmer's life. It's everything hangs in in, in, in one in one little thing, you know. And I'm looking forward to see those people again, you know. It's 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 really it's a people, our business is really a people's business. And uh, it's what makes us who we are. It's the passion that goes in. Uh, the team that works with each other, all these people that work with each other, it's much more passion that goes in than anything else. And that's what makes the difference, That what makes the, the DNA of, of a specific restaurant. It's that, that group that makes it happen. So chefs. Thank you so much for your uh, participation to uh, the panel today and to be a guest on uh, my podcast, Flavors Unknown. I wish you all, um, you know, the very best for first, stay healthy, um, you, you and your families. And then, uh, of course, the very best for, for your business in the future. And, uh, and I hope to uh, have you um, back again, you know, on the show. Same to you. you stay so safe. Stay safe and make sure yeah, that yeah. you guys... Uh, Take care of each other, and uh, I'm looking forward to better times. And uh, and let's do the right thing. I'm sh there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We have to be positive, yeah. and things are gonna change. And some ways we're gonna come back out of this stronger than we were before. I am so thankful to these three chefs for accepting my invitation to be part of this panel discussion. Chef Naomi Pomroy had to jump on another call before the end of the panel hence her missing voice during the last five minutes of this recording. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues and tell them to subscribe to the show on any phone podcast app like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And they can follow us as well on social media, on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter at Flavors Unknown. My next guest is celebrity chef Roy Yamaguchi from Hawaii. Our conversation was recorded before the coronavirus hit the country. That was a very special moment for me, as the restaurant Roy in Las Vegas was my first exposure to Hawaiian fusion cuisine 15 years ago, and I fell instantly in love with it. I see you in two weeks, and until then, remember that people who love to eat are always the best people. You've just enjoyed another delicious episode of Flavors Unknown. Hungry for more? Hit subscribe. Tell us where you're listening from by leaving a review. And for social media and show notes, head to flavorsunknown.com.